Welcome to the Abbot Circle podcast. I'm Father Ambrose Christ, and I'm the novice master here at St. Michael's Abbey. We hope that you enjoy the following recording. To learn more about the Norbertines, visit theabbotcircle.com. God bless you. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to St. Michael's Abbey and our webinar today. I'm Father Ambrose, and of course, you know Father Sebastian Walsh, who is going to be making the presentation today, and he will begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, seed of wisdom, pray for us. Our holy guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We're really glad that you all are joining us in this new and exciting format. In just a little over a week, we're going to dedicate our new Abbey Church and officially begin this new chapter of our life here at St. Michael's Abbey. And so these are very exciting weeks. We're happy to be able to uh, contribute to this enthusiasm with this kind of format of teaching through our Abbey webinars. And St. Um, Norbert, of course, was very uh, zealous to be engaged with his world 900 years ago as we are today. And Father Sebastian has a lot to say about that this morning. Father Sebastian, take it away. Thank you very much. Move here to the center so that you can see me a little bit better. So um, as you saw from the title that was advertised for the webinar, this is a Catholic perspective on current events. And Father Ambrose just mentioned the fact that, in fact, there's so many different current events, we can't cover them all in a single webinar. So today's webinar is going to focus on a particular piece of legislation that's on the minds of many people, many Catholics. It's the so-called Equality Act, Equality Act. It's already passed the House, and my understanding is that it's still before the Senate. But um, it's important for us to be able to, as Catholics, understand what kind of legislation this is and how to respond to this legislation or to be able to in some way, um, you know, accurately respond to the difficulties it poses or presents for Catholics. So I wanna talk about a few things. The first thing I wanna do is I wanna talk about the more general principles that are involved in, in considering any law. And so we have to figure out first, what is the purpose? Of law. What's the purpose of law? You can say in a very general way, the purpose of law is so that the people in any society will be treated justly or fairly. Huh? And, um, and if a law doesn't treat people justly and fairly, then it's not a good law. And sometimes if a law in fact treats people unjustly and unfairly, then in fact it becomes not a law at all. Right? So every law must be something reasonable that really is contributing to the good, the common good of the society and to the fairness and justice for the members of that society. And then what's the scope of law? What kinds of things do, do, does law cover? Right? Um, it's obvious that law has to do with man-made things, things that human beings can make or do, and, and the sort of things that are the subject of human choice in some way. Huh? So, for example, if, if two men decide to enter into a contract, there might be laws, contract laws, which govern in some way, shape, or form 
how the relationships are between those two people. One guy wants to make a contract for a building, another guy wants to do you know, something for a business or whatever else. Those are the sorts of things that are covered in law. And also other human relationships, for example, the relationships um, which exist within a family, the relationships which exist uh, between different uh, people in different cities and places where they live. All of these in some way can be um, covered by law. But what falls outside the scope of law are things that are not man-made and are not subject to human choice. For example, natural things and also supernatural things. So to take some examples, if there was a so-called law which insisted that mathematicians from here on out would have to treat triangles as if they were squares. And from now on, all mathematicians have to treat triangles as if they were squares. That's not a law. It's not something covered by law. It's not in the scope of law. Or if someone uh, were to make a so-called law that said we needed to treat trees as if they were persons now, right? That's a tree is a natural thing. It's not a person. And to treat a tree as a person or to treat a person as if they were a tree, you know, bury them in the dirt and then water them, this would be something that is not covered by the scope of law. So law does not have the authority or the power to determine natural things and whether or not, you know, a tree is a tree or whether or not a triangle is a square or whatever, okay? Law also does not have authority over supernatural affairs that transcend the political order that pertain, for example, to man's salvation and God's revelation. This is why in our society, we have the First Amendment, which specifically talks about the freedom of religion because the authority of the political body, the authority of, of the United States of America and any other state is limited in such a way that it does not extend to telling people how God ought to be worshiped. For example, you can't make a law uh, requiring everyone to be baptized. You can't make a law requiring um, people to believe in the Trinity or to deny the Trinity or to believe in the Incarnation or to deny the Incarnation. Those things are not under the scope of law either. And any government which tries to make laws which interfere either with the natural order or with the supernatural order is a totalitarian government. That's what totalitarian means. It means total. It means that every aspect of human life falls under the authority of the government. And that's not right and not just because everyone recognizes that the government does not have supreme authority in every human matter, right? But only those things that have to do with human, human choices about man-made things, not about God-made things like the natural world or like revelation. That's gonna be important when we come to evaluating illicitness, the morality uh, of the Equality Act. All right, so those are just a few introductory principles about the nature of law. All right, let's, let's move now to the question of the Equality Act. That's a short name for this piece of legislation. <clears throat> and in fact, its longer name is an act prohibiting the discrimination on the basis of uh, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, race, religion, and other things. It's got a whole list of things like that. And so it proposes itself as a way of preventing injustice, a way of preventing injustice. I wanna first speak a little bit about the word discrimination as found in that title. 
Discrimination is one of those ambiguous words. And usually today, when it's used, it means a form of injustice. That is, it means treating uh, things with insignificant differences as if they were significant, or treating things with significant differences as if they were insignificant, okay? So an example of discrimination would be, uh, a man has a different um, hair color than another man, and because of that, he's prohibited from getting a job because of his hair color or because of his skin color, right? Those are things that make no difference um, with regard to someone's competence to perform a job, right? So that would be discrimination in that sense. But we also use the word discrimination in a broader sense and in common parlance, common human speech, to refer to a kind of um, awareness an ability to distinguish the differences among things and see what differences are significant and what aren't. So we talk about a discriminating grocer who gets good you know, produce or a discriminating wine connoisseur, someone who knows exactly what a good wine is as opposed to a bad one. And in this broader sense of discrimination, discrimination isn't always a bad thing, right? So <clears throat> that's really the question. It comes down to this. Are we discriminating in this sense that we are causing injustice by our discrimination. That is, we're looking at insignificant differences and treat them as, treating them as if they were significant or looking at significant differences and treating them as if they were insignificant, right? Is that the kind of discrimination that's going on? Or are we discriminating in the sense that we notice significant differences and we treat those things significantly differently because they're significantly different? So that's a question and that we should not um, fail to see the ambiguity in the word discrimination because a lot of the questions about um, the licitness, the morality of this piece of legislation hinge on that. I also wanna address the short name for this piece of legislation, it's called the Equality Act. And in general, if you say to someone, should everyone and everything be treated equally, right? In general, people think, oh, that's true because we think of equality as sometimes a synonym for just or justly, right? Someone should be treated equally. That means they should be treated justly. Well, hold on. Equality does not mean the same thing as justice. They do not mean the same thing. So let me give you some examples. Um, if I were to treat an animal the same way as I treat a man, and a man the same way I treat an animal. So I say that men and animals are equal. Would that result in justice if I put a man in a kennel and fed him dog food? No, of course not, right? That's not just for the man to treat him equal to an animal, right? Or what if I treated a, a child as the same as an adult? For example, I insisted that a three-year-old go out there and, and register for the draft and go out and fight on the lines. Would that be because I treat the child equal to the adult? Would that be something that's just, right? We have all sorts of laws that ensure that children and adults are treated differently. There is a, you know, a age of consent for marriage. There's an age of consent for sexual activity. There's an age of consent for um, drinking alcohol. There's an age with regard to voting. There's all these different dis uh, distinctions we make in law between children or minors sometimes, and full-grown mature adults. And we consider that to be just, not unjust. So not every equality involves justice. If I treated children as equal to adults, that would re result in an injustice. 
or to take some other examples. If I treat someone who is unqualified for a job, he has no knowledge, for example, of how to build bridges, and I hire him as the chief architect for a bridge, right? And I say, well, that's because I'm treating everyone equal. I'm gonna treat the guy who doesn't know anything about um, bridges as equal to the guy who knows bridges because we need to treat everyone equal. Is that fair? No, not at all. Or again, um, disabled people and treating them as equal to able-bodied people. And we insist that, well, able-bodied people can go up 32 flights of stairs and therefore the disabled person should be treated equally to that. And therefore that's just, no. And then finally, what about male and female? Because this is at the heart of the equality law. Should we treat men and women equal in every respect? Well, if we do think of some of the consequences, for example, um, we would think that if men and women are equal in every respect, then men should be able to participate in women's sports uh, and, and women should be drafted and have to do the same sort of physical labor that men have to do and so forth. There's all sorts of injustices that can occur if we treat everybody and everything equally. So I really want you to be aware of that fact. Equality does not equal justice. In fact, very often, equality means injustice. If I treat a man the same as an animal, injustice. If I treat a child the same as an adult, injustice. If I treat an uneducated person the same as an educated person, injustice. If I treat a man the same as a woman, injustice. If I treat a disabled person exactly the same in every respect as an able-bodied person, injustice. So we should not be deceived by thinking that every time something is equal, therefore it's just. And so that's another word, equality, like discrimination, which needs to be evaluated carefully so that we understand exactly whether or not uh, this is a just law that's ensuring the purpose of law, namely that people are treated fairly and justly within a society. Okay. So those are just a few introductory points. Now let's get down to some of the, um, the particular questions surrounding the Equality Act. One of the things that the Equality Act attempts to do is it attempts to make or render an equality between persons of the same, of different sexes, for example, male and female. It tries to render them as equal. Okay, treat male and female as equal. Now, right away, this runs into one problem. And that problem is that the law, the so-called law, pertains to something which is a natural difference, not something that's created by man. Okay, male and female are natural differences. Huh? Um, it's a little bit like the laws pertaining to abortion that treat unborn children as if they were not persons, or like the, uh, the, the old laws about slavery that treated a slave as being less than a full person, right? Or people of color being less than full persons, right? That's unjust. And in fact, it doesn't belong to the law to determine what is a person, but simply to acknowledge the, the accepted understanding of person that everyone can see and the understanding of male and female that everyone can see from just looking at the world around them. For example, um, what would we say is a definition of male and what's the definition of female? I'll give you a very simple definition. 
Male, maleness is a quality of an animal in virtue of which it is naturally apt when mature to beget offspring in another. And female is a quality of an animal in virtue of which it is naturally apt when mature to conceive offspring within itself. Those are clear understandings of male and female. They belong to the animal kingdom, not just human beings, but um, dogs and cats and all sorts of animals that reproduce sexually. And it's a natural difference, just as the difference between persons is something natural. And so the law doesn't get to say that male is female or female is male, or that a person is not a person or a non-person is a person, right? I gave you the example before, treating a, a man as if he were an animal, putting him in a kennel and feeding him dog food. No, the law doesn't get to do something like that. That's the natural order which is established by God. And even if you don't believe in God, you can see the natural order is something that falls outside the scope of the authority of the state. And therefore, that's not the sort of thing that law is competent to legislate about. So there's a first difficulty with regard to the so-called Equality Act. It legislates about things that are natural differences and tries to reduce these natural differences to something which is just artificial or man-made. And that's not true. That's not right. And that's not true. So there's one significant uh, point there. All right. Now I want to actually turn to some of the texts of the Equality Act, just so you understand exactly what's at stake here. So um, I'm going to read to you the section, section 1101, definitions and rules from the Equality Act. So here are some of the definitions. One, race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, or national origin used with respect to an individual includes A, the race, color, religion, sex, including sexual orientation and gender identity or natural, national origin, respectively, of another person with whom the individual is associated or has been associated. And B, a perception or belief, even if inaccurate, concerning the race, color, religion, sex, including sexual orientation and gender identity or national origin, respectively, of the individual. That's the definition of these terms, okay? There's so many things wrong with this definition. Even if you don't study any logic, you can see there's something really hopelessly wrong. First of all, it's gibberish and it's ambiguous. For example, um, what kind of thing does this mean? Um, with whom the individual is associated or has been associated. What does that mean? That's a hopelessly vague word. It can't possibly be the basis of legislation. I mean, association is such a broad term, there's no way to say, what do you mean someone's been associated with this? I mean, I'm associated with a cup of coffee when I drink it in the morning, but that's not a sufficiently clear, distinct term which can be the basis of authentic legislation and really deciding how we treat people or don't treat people. Okay, one problem. Another problem, extremely serious. It's a circular definition. It includes in the definition of race, race. It includes in the definition of religion, religion. It includes in the definition of gender identity, gender identity. Now, everyone knows you can't define something by itself, right? It has to be defined in terms of something better known than it, right? So all of these definitions I gave you all involve a circular definition. I'll read it again. Uh, and, and I'll just do it with regard to one thing, for example, to make it clear. The race 
with respect, used with respect to an individual includes the race of another person with whom the individual is associated or has been associated and the perception or belief, even if inaccurate concerning their race. That's just a circular definition. It's gibberish, it doesn't mean anything. Or again, with regard to the, sec the gender identity. The gender identity of a, used with respect to an individual includes the gender identity of another person with whom the individual is associated or has been associated, or B, the perception or belief, even if inaccurate, concerning the gender identity of the individual. What does that mean? It's just a circular definition. That can't possibly be the basis of fair legislation. It can't be the basis of intelligent thought, much less fair legislation. So there's another problem, circular definitions. You would expect better from our legislators, you would think. Then finally, um, this idea of gender, sex, things like that, as if they were relative and not absolute. Notice how it's defining things like gender or sex. It's, a, it's the gender of another person with whom the individual is associated or has been associated. It makes your gender relative to someone else or at least relative to your own belief, right? Perception or belief, even if inaccurate, concerning the gender of that individual, right? So again, you've got this problem because everyone knows that gender is something absolute. When I say male or female, it's not like father and son. I can be the father of one person and the son of another, but I can't be the male of one person and the male of an, and the female of another, right? It's something absolute there, male and female, for example, okay? So those are a lot of problems. Finally, this idea that perception or belief, even if inaccurate, should be the basis of legislation. Imagine, imagine if we universally applied that, even as narrowly as it's applied here, um, this legislation is saying that if I believe I'm a certain race, then I am that race according to law, right? If that's my perception, even if inaccurate. Now, what does that mean? Well, so much for all the affirmative action legislation, I guess, if I go in and I say, I'm a minority and I get all the benefits of minorities and you have to treat me that way. I'm an American Indian according to my own belief and therefore you have to give me the scholarships which are reserved for American Indians, right? That's unjust. That's unjust. There are certain scholarships that are only reserved for people you know, of certain backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, but according to this legislation, I get to decide based upon my own subjective belief, even if inaccurate, right? So my inaccurate false beliefs end up being the basis of legislation and how I'm treated and how other people have to treat me. So other people are now forced to act according to my false and inaccurate beliefs. Since when is that something that's a subject of rational legislation? We can do the same thing with regard to national origin. If I say it, I was born, in Kazakhstan, then I guess I am born in Kazakhstan. And then I have to be treated as if I'm born in Kazakhstan. Does anyone see a problem with that? Of course, it's crazy. It is not rational and no one thinks it's true. And it's an example of the emperor without any clothes on. You just say, no, I'm sorry. You know, the guy who's in charge claims that this is, you know, everything is normal and fine. That's not true. We cannot act as if what's not real is real and we can't accept that everyone has to be forced into treating what's clearly false as if it were true. That is totalitarianism. Not one 
authority, political authority, has the, the power to make someone lie. It's never okay to force someone to lie, okay? Then, of course, we have the case of gender identity. It's the same thing, right? If my gender identity, if I say that I'm a man when I'm a woman or vice versa, then that's what I am. Well, that's not reality. My perception is inaccurate. That's not reality. And therefore, it, it results in great injustices. So I'm just giving you these definitions so you see just how um, defective these definitions are, how they can't possibly be the basis of fair legislation, much less any legislation whatsoever. So let's now return to the question, given these definitions that are found in the so-called Equality Act, can we answer the original questions? Is this a law? Meaning, does it in fact result in people being treated justly and fairly in a society? In fact, it results in people being treated unjustly and unfairly in a society because these natural differences, in particular between uh, male and female, but also the differences that are involved in race and differences that are involved in religion, the differences that are involved in natural national origin, those things are a little bit less um, um, stable and not rooted in human nature. So I really wanna focus on the differences of male and female, which is natural difference. That results in extremely grave injustices to people in the society. For example, um, parents and children. Imagine a little child and their dad decides they want to be a woman, right? Now the poor little child is deprived of having a father. And he has to tell, he has to speak about his father as if it were his mother or as if it were some other person who wasn't his mother, but a female or something like that, right? Or a little child when their mother decides they want to be a man and now the child is forced to, to no longer have a mother according to, at least according to the law. And conversely, that a parent is forced into having, instead of a son, a daughter or vice versa or even perhaps some other thing that's not even male or female, according to some of these new um, gender theories. Huh? So as a consequence, within family relationships, there are serious injustices done. Only recently in Canada, a father of a 13-year-old girl was put in prison because he refused to refer um, to his I, I don't even remember which it was now. I think it, he had a daughter that wanted to be a son. And so he refused to refer to his daughter as his son. And because of that, um, and it wasn't even towards the daughter, it was, it was in an interview. And because of that, he was put in prison. That's an injustice. That's a grave injustice. No state should be able to take a daughter away from his father. No state should be able to do that and make the father lie and say that his daughter was a son when that's not true. I often say with regard to um, the so-called sex change operations, they're nothing of the sort. You know, you go to Disneyland, you can trim the bush and make it look like an, uh, an elephant. It's still a bush in the shape of an elephant. In the same way, everything about a human being, his DNA or her DNA is the same, even if they have all these modifying surgeries that change their outward appearance, right? So um, the truth, the foundational natural reality is still going to be present there regardless of what the law says or the so-called law and regardless of what the outward appearance might be the fundamental reality is still unchanged right okay there's some injustices that happen within family relationships 
What about injustices at the societal level? Well, first of all, there's an injustice with regard to marriage. Marriage is a lifelong communion between a man and a woman, which is established by their free consent for the sake of the generation and the education of children. And that has a privileged place in society because no other human relationship is such that it is apt to bring about new citizens for society and new members of our species. So it has a privileged place that it holds in society. Without marriages, society can't continue and our human race can't continue, okay? That being the case, we see that marriage and family existed before any state existed. The state does not have the authority to manipulate marriage and family as if it were something just merely man-made. It's natural. And before any state existed, marriages and families existed. Men and women were coming together, having children and raising their own children before any state intervened or got involved in that. And that's unjust for the state to, to treat marriages as equal to these other relationships between persons that are merely man-made contracts, huh? these um, social unions, for example. Also, the expectations of men and women towards one another is gravely harmed, right? Let's say you've got uh, a case where there's uh, two people at a bar and the first person gets in an argument with the second person. And maybe the first person, you know, said some really insulting words, you know, maybe even a racist thing or something like that. And then the second person went ahead and just started hitting the, uh, the first person and, and started beating them up. Now, if we saw that and we said, okay, those are two men, the first guy kind of had it coming because he said something really insulting to the second man. I think you'd say, well, okay, he, the second man shouldn't have gone, gone on and done that, but at least you see something there where you say, you know, the first, the, the, the second man shouldn't be punished too badly, assuming that he doesn't do grave, grave harm to the other person. But what if the first person's a woman and the, it's a man who's beating up on the woman? Don't you think that makes a significant legal difference? Don't you think women should be protected in a case like that? But according to this theory, if a man identifies as a woman and he starts beating up a woman, then according to him, the law should treat him as if he were a woman. It's just a fight between two women. That's not fair. It's gravely unjust. And then of course, there's all the other ways in which women become victims. They're forced to share bathrooms. They're forced to share locker rooms. They're forced in prisons to be imprisoned with men, right? They're forced in, they would be forced, for example, to be eligible for the draft. If men and women are completely interchangeable and there's no natural differences between men and women, right? Then women should be drafted just like men and forced to fight and put on the front lines when they're 18 years old. And then subject to the possibility of being raped and all sorts of terrible things that would happen to a soldier on the front lines. That's a terrible thing, a terrible injustice to women, right? So the relationships between men and women are gravely harmed and grave injustices come about if we try and reduce these natural differences to equality by means of a fiat by a bad piece of legislation, which is nothing of the sort. Okay, um, finally, there are injustices, of course, at the level of religious freedom. It seems that the only people these days that are holding on to normal right reason anymore are people that are believers. And so some, some people falsely claim that the only people who are against this Equality Act are those who have faith, and this is all just about their own crazy religion. 
Well, no, the things that are subject of the Equality Act have nothing to do with revealed religion. Not one thing I said in this webinar has quoted a passage in scripture as a basis for the differences between men and women and for what justice is and what law is and how things ought to be treated. Not one thing has been based upon any revelation from God. It's accessible to everyone who's got a mind and working senses. So it's very clear that the injustices which are being perpetrated against people of faith is not because of their faith, but because the fact that those who hold on to faith also believe that the world is created intelligently by God and the natural world actually is something that has its origin outside of human action. So I'm going to finally uh, end with a couple quotes. Uh, these quotes are from, one is from, uh, the last will be from G.K. Chesterton, but the first couple are from a wonderful article that was in the Wall Street Journal. And um, it's on this similar topic here. Quote, what goes unnoticed or at least unsaid in the current debates invoking religious freedom is that the beliefs in question are not beliefs at all. The Equality Act doesn't concern such invisible mysteries as the Holy Trinity, for example. That is a matter of belief in the strict sense, although it's not rational, uh, irrational or private. Rather, the Equality Act concerns things that everyone can see and understand. Infants don't need instruction to know that their mothers are the ones who are nursing them, and their fathers are the ones who are not. Sexual difference is obvious to anyone with eyes to see. And then another quote, the tragic irony is that society is now awash in quote beliefs based on nothing but deep-seated feelings and fluid self-identifications. Stop and think about that. Am I what I believe to be, right? If I say that I'm a giraffe, does that make me a giraffe? If I say I'm a double amputee, does it make me a double amputee? The obvious answer for every rational being is no. And if I say that I'm a man when I'm a woman, or if I say that I'm a woman when I'm a man, the answer is no, you're wrong. We don't just get to determine reality by the way we feel about it. Um, that really sounds a lot like a spoiled child, I'll be honest with you. Little children try to make reality conform to their desires, but healthy individuals, psychologically healthy and emotionally healthy individuals realize, no, if I'm going to be happy, I've got to conform my desires to the way things are, not vice versa. So to continue with this quote, <clears throat> only these quote beliefs are by no means private. They demand to be publicly confessed by everyone and in every aspect of common life or else. There's another grave injustice. Everyone is forced to lie if the Equality Act is made the law of the land. Everyone is forced to lie by law. I'm supposed to call men women and women men. I'm supposed to call people of a different race than they actually are. I'm supposed to say they're from a different nation than where they're actually born from. All those things are lies. And no one, no authority on earth has the power to force someone to lie. That's never okay. I wanna finally close with a quote from G.K. Chesterton who saw this coming almost a century ago. Here's what he said, quote, everything will be denied. Everything will become a creed. It is a reasonable position to deny the stones in the, to deny the, stones in the street. It will be a religious dogma to assert them. Fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that these are green in the summer. We shall be left defending not only the incredible virtues and sanities of human life, 
but something more incredible still, this huge impossible universe, which stares us in the face. So I close with that. And I hope that this has been instructive and informative. And now I'll open it up for questions. Okay, so we're gonna arrange, rearrange our seatings here, friends, so that we can um, have a little bit of a, a conversation now. Father Sebastian, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so clear. It's so nice to hear things that are clear <laughs> in a world that is presenting us with so many things that are unclear. So thank you for your really fine presentation. And we've noticed here over on the administrative side of the webinar that the, the question box is blowing up <laughs> because you've touched on, I think, some ideas that then have ramifications in so many other parts of our confused society right now. Mm -hmm. So we can we could veer into all kinds of other little um, rabbit holes about um, all kinds of social moral questions, but we're going to have to put some of those aside friends, we can't answer all of your questions that touch on um, some of the things you're asking. So I want to just direct the conversation to remain with this topic. Of okay. the, and we'll have other webinars yes. that, that address some of these other topics. Right, sure. so, so the Equality Act, we're gonna try to keep it located there, everybody. So if you don't hear your question answered, that's part of the reason why. So let's just dig in a little bit, Father Sebastian, into some of the things you talked about. First, could you give us the definition again of male and female? That was very yes. helpful. Yep. And I think it's a good sort of jumping off ground here for us. Yes. So um, you could say kind of more concretely that um, male is a quality that belongs to um, an animal, right? It's a quality that belongs to an animal in virtue of which it is naturally apt when mature to beget offspring in another. Right? So that's what a male is in the animal kingdom. A female is uh, one who has the quality in virtue of which, an animal which has a quality in virtue of which, it is naturally apt when mature to conceive offspring within itself. That's the, the basic distinction between male and female. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows what's the difference between a man and a woman for human beings. Well, the male begets offspring in another the female conceives the offspring within herself. And that's how we distinguish male and female for human beings. And of course, it's the same way with all sorts of other animals, dogs, cats, and fish, and whatever. Thank you, Father. Um, sure. That, of course, touches then that, that truth, which is becoming eclipsed, I think is also very much eclipsed by this other word, gender. Yes. So can you say something about, um, you know, do human beings even have gender in this sense, which is a, yes. the same kind of equality. What is gender and do we even have such a thing? Yeah, okay. So the word gender, of course, is there's, there's kind of a new theory that's kind of being uh, floated out there in an attempt to, um, to separate when we're talking about human beings anyway, to separate gender from sex, right? Now, even in this Equality Act, I wanna point out, <laughs> one of the definitions says specifically that sex means or includes gender identity. So even the Equality Act admits that sex and gender mean the same thing sometimes. Now, it's true. We can talk about the gender of nouns in, yeah. if we're talking about Latin or something like that. And obviously we're speaking equivocally. The word is used equivocally when it's the same name, but a different definition. And it's used univocally when we've got the same name, but the same definition. Okay, so we want to see how is gender used when I say a man is a male and a woman is a female. What do I mean by that? 
In that sense, gender and sex are used equivocally. Those are synonyms in that case, all right? So this is a kind of false distinction to try and say, my gender is my subjective self-belief, whereas my sex is something biologically founded. That's not true. And a sign of that is they are incapable of defining gender without reference to sex. So what do they do? They create a circular definition. They say gender is gender identity. Gender identity is gender identity that you're associated with or that you believe that you have without, without actually telling you what it is because they want to avoid the fact that gender means sex when we're talking about human beings, okay? So that's one thing to be really clear about, that, that that's a false distinction. And if what you mean by gender is just simply my perception about what sex I am, if that's all you mean by gender, then all you're talking about is a, a false word, a false name or false definition. No one thinks that their sex is what they think their sex is. No one uh, believes or thinks that someone's gender is what they think their sex is, right? Their gender is objectively based in reality, not in subjective feelings, right? It's the same way. If I say I'm a, if I feel like I'm a double amputee, but I've got two working legs, my feelings just don't correspond to reality. If I feel like I'm a giraffe, but I'm a man, then th those feelings don't have a basis in reality. And if I feel that I'm male when I'm female or vice versa, those feelings don't have a basis in reality. So that's not my gender and that's not the basis of any legislation. Amazingly, the legislation itself admits that this perception can be inaccurate. And then to, to make inaccurate beliefs the foundation of legislation is a travesty and a great injustice. So yeah. thank you, Father. So just one, one more facet of that, because of course, in our very confused world that we live in right now, there are in fact people who are male yes. who feel themselves to be female. Yes. Or or vice versa. Yep. Or there are, you know, even crazy, but it's true, people who men who feel themselves to be a giraffe or whatever. Yes. So yep. now. So let's just be really clear about that, 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 that such a person yes. is not wicked or, or bad. They might be, but they might be wrong. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that true? That's true. Right. So we don't, we don't go around judging people's souls because of their feelings. I mean, let's face it. <clears throat> we're all in the same sinking boat of original sin. Okay. <laughs> so when the church says, for example, that such and such is intrinsically disordered, they're not giving a, a specific condemnation of one person over another. The church teaches every single person saved Jesus and Mary had original sin, original sin. And that means all of us, guess what? We have intrinsic disorders, disordered dis feelings. So a married man feels attracted to women other than his wife. I'm sorry, it's true. We don't say, therefore, his identity is to be an adulterer. It's not his identity because he feels that way. He might not even be able to get rid of those feelings, right? He may have very strong feelings that he has to resist very powerfully in order to be a good and faithful husband. And nevertheless, we call that inclination, that desire disorder, because he should only have relations and even feel related towards his wife in that way. Right. Similarly, with people who have uh, same sex attraction, people who have gender dysphoria, whatever permutation you can imagine, all of us, because of original sin, have some disordered emotions. Right. If you've ever met someone that doesn't have disordered emotions, then um, 
And it's the blessed version. I think, it's, I think the blessed version <laughs> has appeared, appeared to you. So <laughs> that's the truth. So let's just call a spade a spade and recognize the fact that disordered emotion is part of human life. And we can respond to our disordered emotions in one of two ways. We can take the spoiled child approach and say the world has to conform to my emotions. Or we can take the mature adult response and say, my emotions don't correspond to reality. And so for the sake of my good and my living well with other people, I'm going to try and work on my emotions or at least act as if they're not determinative. In the world today, we think that our emotions are the real us. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Our choices and decisions are the real us, not our emotions. And, um, and many people who have come to me over the years have had problems with different you know, um, emotional problems. I've had many people come to me with gender dysphoria. They felt that we were, they were a woman when they were a man. They felt that they were attracted to someone of the same sex, right? Or different things like that, or just people that are attracted to fornication or adultery. And in each case, I treat them as a human being. I help them to change their minds and their feelings, not their bodies. And even if you couldn't change your feelings, like that poor man who still feels attracted to beautiful young women when he's 60 years old and his wife is not a beautiful young woman anymore, um, even when you can't change their feelings, you can help them live virtuous lives. And it's okay because we're not defined as human beings by our feelings and our sexual desires and our strong emotions. We're defined by being children of God and our happiness consists in knowing, loving, and serving God. And then knowing other people and loving other people in reality, not the way we would have them be. Thank you, Father. That um, brings up one of the questions or refers to one of the questions that one of you wrote in. Practically speaking, what would you suggest then uh, in the messy world, family lives and so forth, that we, so forth that we live in? So confronted with someone who does have one of these gender dysphoria or, um, same-sex attractiveness or something like that. Let's say, let's take the case of a gender dysphoria. What, how should we respond to someone who insists um, or invites us, says, you know, please call me by this other set of pronouns mm -hmm. now. Yes. I'm, I'm identifying as the other sex. Please mm -hmm. call me by the other set of pronouns. Yeah. What, is a, what is a good family or Christian or just, yes. what is a response to this? Yes, okay. So the first thing is to recognize their pain is very real. Okay, I read some interesting medical journals and articles that said, that at least in many cases, gender dysphoria arises when a little child, their, their parent of the opposite sex, at, at some point becomes distant or there's a danger that they'll lose that parent. And so they want to identify with the sex of that parent. So like a mother is almost dies or, or, you know, for a long time has to be away or something like that. And a little boy then identifies. So um, there might be all sorts of causes of this. I don't pretend to know enough psychology or medicine to say what all the causes are, but apparently that's one of the ways in which someone can, can acquire this, this gender dysphoria. It's a real pain and it corresponds to a real need. And so in that respect, you have to recognize, you always listen to your emotions. You don't obey them, but you listen to them. And in that sense, you try and identify the root cause of this feeling and you try and address the root cause rather than a superficial one, okay? So that's step one and recognize the real pain. Secondly, at the same time, you have to recognize that sometimes people reject themselves, but we can't reject them. Very often you have a child will say, We're, you're rejecting me because you don't accept my same-sex attraction, or you don't accept my, my uh, identification with a new gender or something, a different gender, um, and you're rejecting me. No, the child's rejecting themselves, 
right? And if the child rejects themselves, you can't reject them, right? St. Augustine, he speaks about those who sin, right? And who, who depart from Christ. And, he's, and, and the sinners say to the bishop, they say, um, why are you pursuing me, right? I want to be lost. And St. Augustine says, well, it's a good thing for you that I also do not want you to be lost, right? It's a good thing someone's trying to help you because you're not in a position to help yourself. And so the parent has to see that about their child and say, no, I'm not rejecting you. I'm actually accepting you for who you are in reality. You can't see clearly who you are and I need to help you with that. So what can a parent do in a case like that? Well, number one, he can't lie or she can't lie. Mom and dad can't lie and say their daughter is a son or say their son is a daughter. They can't do that. That's a lie. And it would also be um, rejecting who the child is, mm -hmm. in fact. So neither of those things are helpful. It might be that because the child experiences so much emotional pain in those circumstances, it might be that the parent, for the sake of, of trying to help the child get through that emotional pain, um, would refer to their child just by their name without referring to gender, like, you know, calling them son or daughter. You just call them by their first name, like John or Sarah or whatever, right? Names in and of themselves aren't necessarily gender specific. They're identified with certain gender, but lots of names are, you know, Pat and Chris and whatever. There are all sorts of names that are not gender specific and they can apply to men or women. So there's no reason why you can't just call your child by their name. Huh? And that's a name that you as a parent, you have, you gave as a gift to your children. And so, you know, if your child feels hurt right now because they, they're being addressed by a gender that they don't want to be, you can alleviate that suffering by just calling them by their first name, for example, their middle name, if, uh, something like that. Um, but then the next thing is, Real charity demands not that you help them change their bodies, but change their minds and change their feelings as well as you can, right? It's the same thing. If your child said, I am a double amputee or I am a giraffe, right? You, you're not helping your child if you're getting them surgery so they cut off their healthy legs. You're not helping your child if you get them, you know, surgery to make them look like a giraffe. You're, you know, if they say, you know, in fact, I'm, you know, a 60-year-old Mexican man when they're a 14-year-old girl. You're not helping them if you try and make them look like that, right? So um, authentic charity for your children means helping them change their minds, not their bodies. Okay. Thank you, Father. Okay, so then taking back, panning back out to a bigger picture here, um, what do you think is behind these irrational laws? Yes. Ultimately, behind these irrational laws is the view that um, all reality is based on our subjective appearances, right? It's called subjectivism. Subjectivism is a philosophical theory that holds that uh, what's first and best known to us and sometimes only known to us are our own subjective appearances, our own thoughts and sense perceptions. There's no objective reality to which we can all appeal in order to say this is true and that is false. So for subjectivists, you say, the only thing you can say is this seems true to me, or this seems true to, to you, or this is true for me, or this is your truth or my truth. Huh? The problem with subjectivism is it always results in grave injustice and oppression. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a simple example, because we all have to live together. That's the whole reason why there's laws. We have to live together. So let's say there's a piece of pizza there. And according to my subjective opinion, I have a right to that piece of pizza. And according to your subjective opinion, you have a right to that piece of pizza. Well, guess what? Who gets a piece of pizza? The one who's stronger, 
the one who's stronger. Subjectivism always results of the oppression of the weak by the strong, always, without exception. And the same thing would happen in this case, right? Whoever's stronger gets what they want and what their subjective beliefs are. And that's not right. That's not right. No one, for example, believes that if a man is raping his wife and murdering his children, no one believes that, well, good for you if that's what you think is right. No one thinks that. Everyone realizes there's an objective standard of morality that we're all bound to, and it has to do with things outside of us, not our subjective feelings. And any law which attempts to relativize or subjectivize reality is a law that mandates injustice, oppression of the powerful over the weak, always, because the powerful always get their way in that world. And, and we need to fight mightily against those kinds of false laws. So then, Father Sebastian, if this law, the Equality Act, does pass through yes. Congress, what do you think we can or should do? Well, let me give you a, a parallel example. Let us say now that for, there's a law that passes through Congress that says all squares must be treated as triangles, mathematicians. What do you think mathematicians will do? Ignore it. Ignore <laughs> it. What if they said that all human beings need to be treated like trees and trees like human beings? Ignore it. We ignore these things. And look, if sane, rational people, you know, you can you can try your best to, you know, to get as many people on your side to try and oppress the sane, rational people. But if just sane, rational people just stop and say, no, I'm not going to pretend like reality isn't what it is. I'm not going to accept a law that says inaccurate beliefs are the basis for the way I treat people. No. So we ignore it and we live our lives just like we always have. And then eventually, I was saying, God always forgives, men sometimes forgive, but nature never forgives. Eventually, nature and natural differences are going to win out. Father Sebastian, thank you for this really elucidating, uh, really helpful and, and inspiring, encouraging too, because wherever we, whenever we look at the truth, we're refreshed. Amen. And uh, so uh, could you please then, well, before we close in prayer, yes. friends, just a reminder, we've recorded this webinar. We'll send you the link. Share it with your friends, please. And uh, if you're new to St. Michael's Abbey, please look around our website and our the Abbott Circle platform. And uh, we, we, we crave your support. We need your support. We're growing rapidly. Our ministries are growing. We're expanding into a new monastic uh, location here. But that also means that God is asking a lot more of us. And your support helps us to answer our call. And we're all in this together, friends. So check us out online. Look for the link to this webinar. And Father Sebastian, can you please close us with prayer? Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings which you have given us, the blessings of nature, the blessings of family and marriage, of children and parents. We thank you for all the beautiful goods and differences that you have put into the world, the ordered world that you have created. We ask that you also further bless our minds and our hearts with the coming of the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might one day see not only the natural world that you have created, but one day live inside your own life and see you face to face with all those whom we love, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our children. And we make this prayer through Jesus Christ, your son and our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Abbott Circle podcast. If you enjoyed listening or were spiritually nourished, please leave a review to help our podcast grow. 
Thanks again. God bless you.